0: Thank you for downloading this edition of Wartime. Remember, as always, Wartime is fully supported by contributions from listeners like you. For more information, please visit wartimepodcast.com. I hope you enjoy the program. Following the close of the Seven Years' War, the British Empire found itself as victor in history's largest conflict, and the owner of an incredible debt. At the start of the conflict, the Imperial Treasury saw its deficits climb from 74 million pounds to a staggering 130 million pounds. To remedy these financial crises, administrators experimented with a number of new taxes and laws directed at the North American colonists, and soon ignited a fervor that would only end with a bloody and terrible rebellion. But how strict were these taxes? And was revolution the only possible outcome? On this episode, we discuss the Sugar Act, the Stamp Act, and the power of politics. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Wartime. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another edition of Wartime. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. On Season 3 of the series, we're discussing the American Revolutionary Era, the people, places, and events that defined it, and the political ideologies that gave rise to the world's first truly modern republic. As always, remember, history is best when it's shared, and you can follow me on Twitter, at Brady Kreitzer. You can visit my author's website, For updates on news, events, and forthcoming books, bradykreuzer.com. And, of course, your home for everything wartime on the web, wartimepodcast.com. On this episode, we move into what many people would consider to be familiar territory in the American Revolution, far away from the great frontier where we spent our first two episodes. We'll be returning there in the future. Uh, But now we're going to move into a more cosmopolitan location, a place of culture, a place of wealth, a place of order, a place of history, a place of heritage. Of course, I'm talking about the great coastal cities of British North America, Boston, Philadelphia, and New York City. Whenever we talk about the American Revolution, and I'll say this a lot, this season, because to me it is infinitely important, and quite frankly, it's why we're listening to this podcast now. It's that when we talk about the revolution, we tend to make it simple. We tend to make it easy, and therefore we miss the much broader swath of very complicated diplomacy and politics that underlies the entire issue. Some people look at the American Revolution as though it was inevitable. And I would say, if you are going into history, if you are studying history, never use that word, inevitable, because nothing is inevitable. Human beings make decisions. Those decisions, political as they may be, have very real consequences. But the American Revolution, I would argue, was not inevitable. The American Revolution was not something most people saw coming. But the way we're talking about it in this season of wartime is in such a way that you can't do anything but see it coming. We're talking about a collusion of political events. We're talking about a compiling of very bad decisions by very powerful people. We're talking about politics. It's very simple. The American Revolution reeks of politics. I would argue, and I say this in my next book, The American Revolution was the single greatest political campaign in the history of the Western world. What it was able to accomplish, the people it was able to convince, were done on a scale never before seen in the history of the planet. It's truly what gave rise to the United States of America as we know it today. But I never want you to take the politics out of it. Because politics, for many of us, are a very uh, off-putting part of a democratic experience, but it's an essential part of the democratic experience. They make us feel dirty. They make us feel filthy. It involves money. It involves bribes. It involves a lot of uh, selfish decisions at times, rather than decisions that focus on the good of the whole. I mean, that's politics. But here's what you have to understand. Here's what I really want to get across to you, and more than anything else that we've done in any part of this uh, series so far, season one, two, or three. Politics today are a direct result of yesterday's politics. Remember, yesterday's politics are tomorrow's history. Today's politics are tomorrow's history. We didn't get to where we are because we're so great. We didn't get to where we are because we popped up from thin air. We are who we are because of the experience before us. That's true in 2014 as much as it was in 1776. Today, we live in a deeply polarized political climate. I've recently seen a number of statistical analyses that show the 113th Congress in the United States of America, the Congress right now in 2014 and moving into 2015, is the absolute least productive Congress in history, and the most politically divided. Now, both sides have their reasons, many of them which were established many years before any of them were born. But you have to understand our politics are a direct result of yesterday's politics. We're a continuation of it. And American politics, just as American culture in many ways, is an offshoot of British politics. The story we're going to talk about today is a story of political decisions. It's a story of political campaigning. It's a story of propaganda in many ways. It's a story of how you change the minds of a group of people. It's a story about how you get people who have seemingly nothing in common with you and nothing to gain uh, with your own ideals to care about what you care about. That's politics. And there's a number of tools and a number of ways that are almost surefire to work on any number of levels. That's politics. The story of the American Revolution is politics. And I know I've waxed poetically about this for about five minutes, but I can't stress to you enough. Do not make the people involved in this story anything more than what they were. The American Revolution was called a rich man's war and a poor man's fight. That's simple enough. A rich man's war, a poor man's fight. But newsflash, that's every war. It's part of the human condition, the people in the position to make powerful decisions will do so at the expense of everyone beneath them. So, let's kind of start this discussion there. The story of today's episode is a story of taxes, at least for the Americans. For the British, it's a story of uh, common sense solutions, we could say. But again, every coin has two sides. Every story has two perspectives, and that's what we're going to focus on today. When you study the American Revolution in grade school, or even in high school, and I hate to admit it, even in college, most of the time you get a very reduced, very simplified version of the events that goes something like this. Taxes go up, the revolution occurs, and then we're at 2014. That's the idea. Um, But that is so grossly oversimplified. Uh, that would I would almost uh, rather no one know that story uh, and have no understanding of the American Revolution than know a bad version of the American Revolution. So for what it's worth on my little podcast, uh, here we are to correct the record, to get into your minds and really reveal to you how really complicated and really nuanced the entire affair was. And again, in my opinion, taking nothing away from the Founding Fathers, as we call them, it makes the story all that much more impressive. But here we go. It's a story of politics. We've reviewed this in every episode so far. We'll do it really briefly one more time so you can have a better understanding of it. The Seven Years' War comes to an end. It all starts there, folks. If you haven't gotten it by now, you'll have another chance, I promise. But the Empire of France has been defeated. Great Britain now is the sole owner of North America. British people around the world celebrate. British North Americans celebrate. They've never been more happy to be British than they are right now. But wars cost money, especially really long wars. And the Seven Years' War was really long. Some would say it started as early as 1754, but it ended unequivocally in 1763. The imperial treasury uh, will see its debt balloon up from about 74 million pounds at the time to about 124 million pounds by the end of the war in 1763. Even worse than that, something new. By 1765, it goes all the way to 130 million pounds. That's a crushing debt. That's a crippling debt. And if you're a British administrator you have to figure out a way to pay that off. You've got to balance the books. You can run the government like a business, effectively. uh, And no business is going to succeed well if it's uh, losing more money than than it's making. So that's how you should really view it. Again, taxes are part of this story, but not the only part. We've spent the last three episodes of wartime talking about the other part of the equation, austerity, how do the British balance the books. Well, they cut spending, uh, austerity, and they raise taxes, revenue. And we spent a lot of time with the spending cuts, and we've seen a lot of people die as a result. But now we'll get to the familiar story, or so you think, revenue. The empire has a really brilliant system for managing itself and managing its wealth, And most empires will employ this in world history in some way, shape, or form. For the British, we call this the mercantile system, or mercantilism. And the essence of mercantilism is this. Goods will be drawn from colonies all around the world, whether it be Africa, India, East Asia, the Caribbean, or North America. And they'll be shuttled to England, where they're manufactured into something usable, something finished. The English will sell it to their European neighbors. Uh, Their European neighbors will then sell their goods to the English, and the English will ship those foreign goods finished to their colonies for consumption there. What I'm describing, in a very sort of confusing way, I admit, is an entirely closed economy. That is this, the British with the mercantile system will put a dome over their entire empire. They say no foreign ships are allowed in any British port, and no British colonists are allowed to sell their raw materials to any foreign merchants. That means all of the tobacco grown in the New World, all of the sugar grown in the Caribbean, will be loaded onto British ships only, not French ships, not Spanish ships. Those ships will then take the goods to either England or somewhere else in the empire and finish them into something and sell them. If you are in America and you want to drink French wine or French molasses, you can do that. But you can't buy it from France. You have to buy it from England. So in that way, you have a lot of people in all the colonies, plantation owners, getting very rich. But a small fraction of their profits, and I guess small is a relative term, always stays in England. The English always get a piece of the pie, and from the imperial vantage point, there's no problem with that. In their mind, they say, we built this colony with our own money, we moved people there with our own money, we built roads with our own money, we put armies there, we built forts, we established cities with our own money. Empires don't build colonies out of the kindness of their hearts, they do it as an investment. And like any investment, the only reason you place your wealth there is to get a return. What's the return? The raw materials. Remember, colonies do not exist to be served by the empire. Colonies exist to serve the empire. That's the way it works. Think of it as a business. And this is the system the British have around the world. It works very well for them. They're very happy with it. But again, at the end of the Seven Years' War, the entire game begins to change. British North America has now doubled in size. Remember, from previous episodes of Wartime, we talked about the fact that the British had a okay, somewhat inadequate system of dealing really, truly effectively governing their empire. After the Seven Years' War, it gets to be so big, their petty system uh, is revealed to be pretty weak after all. So you have a whole bunch of issues for the British Empire. You have a lot of colonists in North America becoming very rich. Uh, That's just the nature of the game. And North American Britons are very happy about it. They're giving some of their money to the empire, but not a terrible lot. Certainly not what later they'll make you think. And the British have to deal with the fact that their empire is much more than just North America. I mean, from the tiny little British Isles, they look east they see colonies. They look west, they see colonies. They look south, they see colonies. For them, all of these people are in jeopardy if the empire falls. Decisions have to be made, and in many cases, taxes have to be raised. Now, when the British look at who will pay these taxes, uh, and again, we've talked about this previously, but it's very important, so it's worth reviewing, they look at the British North Americans. These are the people who are by far the wealthiest people, on the whole, in the empire. There are people in the British North American colonies who own stretches of land that even the super wealthy of England can never dream of owning. Not only do they own that land, but they produce on that land, and they make decent money. Some colonies uh, have a higher per capita wealth, like Jamaica or Barbados, but there are very few colonists there, majority. Uh, enslaved Africans on these islands. But on the whole, the Americans are much richer. Not only are they they the wealthiest, uh, but that's where most of the fighting of the Seven Years' War occurred. And certainly those are the people who stand to gain the most by taking over all of that former French territory and profiting off of it after the Seven Years' War. So the British will decide. These are the people whose taxes will go up. And even that, I'm doing it already, even that is a misleading phrase, because if you look at the whole of the empire, the the British North Americans have by far, by far, the lowest taxes in the entire British world. The British North Americans have the lowest taxes, mostly in the empire. I mean, I can't stress that enough. These are people who are doing very well, and these are people who pay almost no taxes to the British empire. Certainly no direct taxes. I mean, for the average American to literally pay a tax out of his pocket to go directly to the imperial treasury is unheard of. It does not happen. It just hasn't happened. Uh, So the British North Americans, in the eyes of British policymakers in the court of St. James in England, are having a pretty free ride so far. And that free ride is about to end. I mean, think about this figure. You don't have to know what uh, the values translate to in the modern age to understand this. Uh, but if you were to live in England, if you were to live in London specifically, in 1776, you're paying about $26 a year in taxes. If you live in America, that same proportion, you pay less than $1 a year in taxes. Think about that. Living in London, the wealthiest city in the world, literally the center of, of the world, the Metropole at the time, about $26 per year. If you're living in America, you're paying one. So as we begin to talk about taxes, you're going to see a very real disconnect in perception. The Americans are going on and on and on about how terrible their taxes are, how burdensome their taxes are. They're talking about how they are, in some cases, Thomas Jefferson even tries to write this into the Declaration of Independence, enslaved by taxes. And keep in mind, this is coming from a man who not only owns slaves, but rapes them and has children with them, okay? And he's using the fact that taxes are enslaving him. Crazy hypocrisy on a lot of levels here. But at any rate, uh, they're saying they're overwhelmed. Well, look at London. They say, we're paying 26 times more than you every year, and you can't pony up a little more? Now, listen, I'm not trying to say the empire is right or the Americans are wrong. I'm not saying that. If you approach this at a very low level, you might be swayed that way. I'm not trying to do that. But I am trying to give you a realistic understanding of just how burdensome these taxes really are. And when you really start to look at the issues and look at the numbers, you start to really ask yourselves, are taxes really that big of a deal? Uh, Well, the answer is no, but something else is driving it much greater. Again, this is a story of politics. Politics. So here's the deal. The British have this crushing debt in 1763 and a massive Indian uprising because of spending cuts in North America. The North Americans have very real complaints, particularly about their right to be defended. Native peoples are swarming them on the frontier. Again, the Indian insurgency of 1763. They demand protection. Well, that protection is going to cost money, and it's the one thing the British can't do. They can't afford to allocate any more funds to that. So when they look at revenue, they see nothing but the only possibility being taxes going up. Now, we're going to talk about this in the traditional way, but I want to give you a a dose of reality as we go through it. Uh, The first tax the British will levy uh, is something that we traditionally call the Sugar Act. The Sugar Act. And the Sugar Act will be signed in 1764. Now, here's what's not so controversial about that. The Sugar Act is always viewed as the first step in a larger story of taxation. Uh, The story goes, the Sugar Act's put in place, it's a burdensome tax, Americans are put on edge for the first time. But as I say repeatedly in this podcast, there's always more to the story, and there's always more fine details that we have to comb through. Again, it's why you're here to find these details. So what's really behind the Sugar Act, as we call it, of 1764? Well, the Sugar Act is not actually a new law or a new tax at all. In many ways, it's an extension of a much older tax on North Americans that's already been in place. That law is called the Molasses Act of 1733. Okay, so big deal. Sugar, molasses. What are we talking about here? Well, you have to understand the time frame, and the the American Revolution will develop out of this. I promise you. We'll get to it. But here's the deal. The way the North American economy works is that it buys a lot of its uh, most, uh, I think, desirable commodities—sugar—from uh, the British Caribbean, Barbados, uh, Jamaica. Uh, these are the major sugar-growing islands, and of course, they're not taking it as sugar cane; they're taking it as molasses or, most importantly, rum. Right? They're looking to get drunk, so they buy them from the British. Now, one of the problems the British find very quickly. And it's why they make this law in 1733, is that, again, remember, the British aren't the only game in town. The French are in Canada, and the French are also in the Caribbean. And as it turns out, uh, French molasses and French rum, all products of the sugar cane, are actually, like, way cheaper ...than their British counterparts. So if you're an American, especially an American in the, let's say, import-export business... ...in a place like, oh, for example, Boston... ...we're going to say that a lot... ...you're definitely going to buy this French molasses and this French rum... ...this French sugar byproduct because it's so much cheaper. It's the same stuff you get from the British, but it's way less expensive. So in London, when they're looking at trying to balance the books... ...and they're looking at how they're doing overseas, policymakers begin to realize... Uh, the Americans really aren't buying a lot of British sugar. And they should be. It's their job. And they're not. So in 1733, the British will pass what's called the Molasses Act. And the Molasses Act basically adds um, a small tax on any foreign sugar that comes into their ports. Okay? And by a small tax, I mean a very minor tax. The idea is, if you can make this, um, let's say more expensive, French sugar more expensive, uh, then you'll have no choice but to buy honest homegrown British sugar with a lesser price. Uh, so the idea is you make French commodities so expensive uh, that you'll just take the lesser of two evils and buy uh, that British commodity at the time. Well, what happens, of course, very American of us, uh, is that the merchants in Boston and Charleston and Philadelphia and New York, they say, well, we want the cheaper stuff. Uh, And the way they get it is by buying it illegally as contraband. We call that smuggling. They smuggle it. And so as it turns out, the Molasses Act of 1733 turns out to be like totally useless uh, because all it serves to do is not increase British sugar purchase, right, and production. Uh, But it increases a desire uh, for French goods because they're cheaper and it sort of encourages smuggling in an indirect way. That's what I'm saying. So the Sugar Act of 1764, long and short of it, is merely an extension of that. And what this is, uh, is an additional tax, a revenue increase on the original byproduct. It kind of reinforces that old French materials will cost more money, but it also does something very important, which not a lot of people talk about. And what that is, is it makes smuggling much more difficult because every ship that leaves the area has to have a detailed manifest of where they got, what they got, and how they got it. What I'm saying is it's a real crackdown uh, to support the mercantile system that is England's closed economy uh, and and succeed in, in limiting Uh, the amount of illegal uh, material, contraband material, sold at any given time. So, in essence, much more than being a tax on the Americans, the Sugar Act of 1764 really was an attempt to, I think, shore up a lot of very large holes in the imperial system, from customs enforcement to uh, maximizing revenue potential. What was the reaction to the Sugar Act? The Sugar Act is not the kind of tax, we can say, that really stirs a lot of people up. And there was a lot of reason for that. Um, In Boston and Rhode Island, in Philadelphia and New York, you saw some pretty fiery responses to the Sugar Act, but only from the mercantile class only from the merchants on the coast who made money off these products, because it was, in essence, uh, a limitation on what they could do and how they could make money. But the average Joe in Boston uh, didn't really care much for this. But the people who were wealthy and the people who had significant money invested in the import-export business really saw this as a direct assault on who they were and, more importantly, how much profit they could make. You didn't see demonstrations in the streets... I mean, very rarely, uh, because again, for the average person, you didn't have much stake in this sugar act. I mean, this was sort of problem of big business more than anything else, but you do see the beginnings and the rumblings of very powerful, very wealthy, very well-connected people really for the first time, I think, showing a bit of dismay toward the British empire. And again, it was all financial. It was all about money. Remember, um, whether it's 1776 or 2500 BCE or 2014 and beyond. If it's political, it's about money, period. Someone is trying to make money. Money makes the world go round. I know I'm cynical in that regard, but... I haven't been proven wrong yet. Uh, And the American Revolution still fits that very well. So you have this very wealthy mercantile class in New England, in in Philadelphia, in New York, but especially Boston, really pushing the idea that the British are infringing upon the rights of people uh, as British citizens uh, to tax them in that way. Now, again, it's important. This is not a direct tax Uh, This is something that, again, very few people would ever really feel the sting of, but it would trickle through the larger economy. But you begin to see people like Samuel Adams. That's a name you might know, probably some of you more than others. uh, We'll write in May of 1764, and and I'm going to read this verbatim. I, I don't usually do this, but I think hearing the words themselves are important. He writes about the Sugar Act. For if our trade may be taxed, why not our lands? Why not the produce of our lands and everything we possess or make use of? This, we apprehend, annihilates our charter right to govern and tax ourselves. It strikes our British privileges, which as we have never forfeited them, we hold in common with our fellow subjects who are natives of Britain. If taxes are laid upon us in any shape, without our having legal representation, where they are laid, are we not reduced to, from the character of free subjects to the miserable state of tributary slaves. Samuel Adams, May of 1764. Enslavement, we see popping up there in that description, uh, is a very unusual, but still widely practiced, and quite frankly, very effective political mechanism uh, in this world. Uh, If you ever see and this is a little bit off off the topic a bit, uh, but a horrible political ad, or you get these terrible flyers in the mail during an election year, and you wonder, why do people keep doing this? Because nobody wants to see it. It's because it works, okay? If negative political campaigning didn't work, they wouldn't do it. But running those commercials works, so that's why they do it. Um, And using a term like enslavement, slavery, in any number of political contexts that aren't really close to slavery at all quite frankly it works it it builds an image it gives an emotional response that's what samuel adams is doing it's what people still do today i mean you deliver a message that's meant to change someone's emotional response to sympathize with your side but that's what he sees and there's a couple really important things in the sugar act uh that at least in the his rebuttal of the sugar act that samuel adams develops uh he says uh it strikes our British privileges, which, as we have never forfeited them, uh, and annihilates our charter right to govern and tax ourselves. That's very interesting, and it's also very important, because before the Sugar Act of 1764, on the whole, the British Empire never directly taxed a British North American. Uh, there were problems that had to be solved. Defense against the French, who were right there in Canada, was a very real concern. And the colonies kind of handled revenue and taxation themselves. I mean, Virginia taxed its own people to build its own militia. And Virginia had its own army. Um, Massachusetts did that. Rhode Island did that. Pennsylvania didn't. Not at first. Uh, But that's the idea. I mean, colonies really handled their own business in a lot of ways. And in their opinion, this was a dramatic overreach uh, of power uh, and a dramatic threat To the freedom they'd have enjoyed really for the better part of 150 years in British North America. So the Sugar Act is viewed as kind of a benign attempt by the British to fix their very serious revenue problem. Uh, And in the long scheme of things, if it by itself was the only tax levied, so to speak, um, it's probably safe to say that I would probably have a very different passport than I do now. Uh, But it isn't because the, the ball keeps bouncing, the wheels keep turning, the British Empire's in serious debt. And as much as the Americans don't like it, they're going to have to pay in a more direct way to remedy this problem, at least in the minds of British policymakers. This will take us to 1765. And what we'll see in 1765 is by far the most controversial uh, administrative policy that the British will ever implement. In North America in the 150 years of existence up to that point. We call it the Stamp Act. The Stamp Act, as it works, is a very simplistic idea. If you're going to buy any paper product, and even that's misleading, any legal document, any newspaper, if you're going to print it, if you're going to sell it, if you're going to buy it, if you're going to buy a magazine, uh, if you're going to buy a book, anything like that, there's going to be a small additional tax, which varies, okay, from from item to item, uh, that will be collected by the person selling and shipped directly to the empire. This is going to be felt by everyone in British North America, because remember, there's no internet, there's no iPad, there's no podcast, right? If you're going to be entertained, there's no radio, uh, you're going to do it on paper. So everybody buys paper all the time. You're going to pay that additional tax, So even Joe Schmoe on the street, uh, even Mr. Smith in Boston, is going to have to reach into his pocket and pull out a little bit, and I mean generally very little, uh, money to contribute to this imperial fund. Most of it, by the way, which went to pay for defense of the frontier. How about that? It wasn't like going into the imperial coffers. A lot of it was immediately reinvested into the frontier, let the Americans pay for their own defense kind of killing two birds with one stone. But it gave the opportunists, it gave the people who were beginning to realize they were losing a great deal of money because of British tax policy, uh, some ammunition to go after the empire in a more impressive way, Uh, because everybody was seeing this tax in one way or another. Uh, It wasn't just buying paper, though. A lot of people were confused by that. Let's say you had a legal document. Let's say you had a contract. Uh, One merchant and one captain of a ship and you sign a contract and it is legal tender so to speak and it is of the fullest legal standing in the uh, british empire if you didn't buy the stamp if you didn't purchase that small insignificant piece of paper uh, your contract was null and void it was not recognized by the empire kind of devious uh, by the empire to do that Uh, i think it's creative uh, we could say Um, but hey government's been collecting taxes in the most in the most unusual and creative ways. Um, sometimes it seems like that's what they do best uh, for generations and for thousands of years, and it's just another example of that. But that's the Stamp Act of 1765 on its own, on paper, by itself. But it gives a very real opportunity for people in British North America to really make a point And again, this ball really began to roll with, the year earlier, the Sugar Act. There were these wealthy mercantile investors who were losing money because of these new stricter British policies and who wanted it back and more. Now, what does the average dock worker uh, or the average cobbler or the average farmer in Massachusetts care about the pocketbooks of some wealthy mercantile businessman? Uh, They don't. But now things they used to buy for one price has gone up. And because of it, it's a very tangible thing. It's a very real thing that even the the, the most uneducated, simple person can see. Uh, The British are the bad guys. They're infringing on our rights. And you're paying more because of it. And now, because you are paying more, well, the proof is there. It's a great political tactic. We use it today as we use it forever. Um, When George W. Bush was president... Democrats looked at the price of gas, uh, and they said, look how expensive gas is. I remember where I lived, it was $4, probably much more for some of you. And people said, George Bush is a bad president, look at the price of gas. Well, sure enough, fast forward three years when Barack Obama's president, now the Republicans are all pointing to the gas price and saying, look how bad this president is, the gas price, the gas price. And the fact of the matter is, the entire thing is insane. Because the President of the United States has absolutely nothing to do with the price of gas. It's the system we have. But everybody needs it. Everybody sees it. I mean, almost everybody fills up their gas tank. Even if you take a bus, you know, your tolls will go up according to how much gas costs. So it's a very easy tool. And it's exactly what these people in New England did with the Stamp Act. It was a very minor, minor tax to pay. But it was the first direct tax in the history of the empire on the, on the Americans themselves, and it spoke volumes as a result. We had limited opposition to the Sugar Act of 1764, but the Stamp Act of 1765 uh, had brutal opposition. There were riots in the streets over this, and again, we know how it works. You get people excited about something political. They uh, begin to, uh, I guess you can say, uh, grow in fervor, and they begin to do crazy things. In Boston especially, but also Philadelphia, you saw people take to the streets. You saw them uh, riot. You saw them kicking windows, and and you saw them sort of raid government offices all the time. Uh, they used to make uh tax collectors in effigy. Like they'd sew fabric together to make it look like a person, they put a name on it, and they'd burn that that false body in the streets, burning an effigy. And they'd cheer and they'd yell and they'd scream. Um and and it was very scary if you're an imperial tax collector who has to do your job. But this is what's going on there. John Adams gives us a great quote. John Adams, founding father, second president of the United States, he was there to see all of this in seventeen sixty five. Uh, he said And this still applies. And this is the beauty of why it's so political and why you should view it that way. He said in 1765, when the pot is set to boil, the scum rises to the top. That's what he said. Never forget that. When the pot is set to boil, the scum rises to the top. So what's he saying? Well, what he's saying is on every issue, you have uh, some people on one side and some people on the other. And the majority of people are in the middle keeping to themselves, keeping quiet, going about their business. But the vocal opponents and the vocal advocates are the loudest people in the room. And often their actions predicate how we view the entire debate. The moderates in the middle are always the first casualty. Now, some important things here. These people, riding in the streets, rebelling against the Stamp Act, are not the wealthy. Uh, the wealthy are sort of pulling the strings, so to speak, as a puppet master watching this. It's exactly what they want. They want the British to get the message. They want them to eliminate these new revenue streams, to eliminate these new taxes, and they want their personal wealth to go up. And now that they got these somewhat detached people excited about it, uh, it's even more pressing. Very important for us to understand uh, is who's expected, who's expected in 1765 to be politically active. Today we have this idea uh, that uh, a gentleman is almost every man in america so to speak i mean everyone's a gentleman Um, we put gentlemen on our bathroom doors and we certainly know that not everyone who goes in there fits that mold Uh, but in 1765 that's not the case at all politics were only for real gentlemen wealthy powerful connected people the hoi polloi the average person had no business no business being involved in politics And I'm not talking just running for office, being a gentleman's game. I'm talking about voting. I mean, to vote in colonial America, you had to be, no questions asked, a white man over the age of 25 who also, mind you, owned his own property, owned land. If you didn't fit that mold, you weren't a gentleman, and you had no business making decisions that affect the very upper elite crust of the empire. I mean, this is not a democracy. Uh, not in the traditional sense, there is a notion of democratic value there, but who is eligible to vote and who isn't is totally up for grabs. And ladies, remember, you don't get the right to vote in this world until 1920. I mean you're still you're still 200 years off, effectively. So um, never mind freeing slaves. Where, I mean, we're not talking about that. We're talking about selectively, who is a citizen at its basic level. And that's what they saw. These lower class people weren't expected to be the ones pushing the agenda. They were expected to be the ones uh, maybe executing the will or the whim of the elite upper crust, but they were not expected to be the people who were writing letters to Parliament and writing letters to the king demanding taxes being lowered. These groups uh, that, again, we don't necessarily want to say are violent, but they are extreme, taking to the streets, you know, damaging property, burning things, beginning to call themselves the Sons of Liberty, And you got to love that. Because who could be against it? The sons of liberty. Uh, You love freedom. You don't love freedom? What's wrong with you, right? That's another great political tactic we always use. We give it a very uh, nice name. George W. Bush passed what he called the Patriot Act, uh, which means the government can read your emails and tap your phones with no warrant but it's called the Patriot Act. Who could be against that? Uh, Barack Obama passes what he calls the Affordable Care Act. Uh, Who could be against affordable care? That's the idea. Uh, You give it a very benign name that makes any opposition to it almost seem unbelievable or untenable in some way. And that's what happened here. The Sons of Liberty uh, were mostly Average folks, lower class folks who were angry uh, and being directed. But who was directing them? The leadership of the Sons of Liberty were not uh, people from the streets. I mean, these were the wealthy and powerful of New England, of Boston, for example, in that city uh, that was leading this. And they were directing the whole thing. These people were damaging property. These people were becoming very problematic. And by 1766, the British Empire has to look long and hard at what's going on here, because they never believed that asking a minor pitiance of attacks would ever lead to such a dramatic turn of events as what they're seeing there. Uh, the Stamp Act riots, we call them, for that reason. Very troubling. Well, in 1766, the British Empire will eliminate, eliminate the Stamp Act, and the Sugar Act, for that matter, uh, and they'll kind of take a step back. And they'll take a very good look uh, at 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 what their options really can be by the time they eliminate it. And and here's the other issue we have: a lot of people think it's a British-American debate, but not even close. Do the research. Look at the records of Parliament. Here's a really good example: in a parliamentary debate, William Pitt, William Pitt, one of the major major policy makers in British history. He's the man that almost single-handedly turned around the Seven Years' War in favor of Great Britain, says this. He says that the British Empire, with respect to the American colonies, have been entirely wrong. He continues by saying, it is my humble opinion that this kingdom has no right to lay a tax upon the colonies. He says, the authority of this kingdom over the colonies to be sovereign and supreme in every circumstance of government and legislature whatsoever are, quote, a voluntary gift and grant of the common alone. He says that uh, the idea of raising this tax without giving the Americans a voice in the decision is, quote, the most contemptible idea that has ever entered into the head of man. Now, remember, This is a British man. William Pitt has never been in North America. He'll never go there. And he has an issue with it. Now, here's something really important. The Sons of Liberty are not saying we're going to overthrow the empire. The Sons of Liberty are not saying the British empire is a horrible thing, and we wish to separate from it. They're not talking about rebellion. They're not talking about revolution. They're very clear. We are British citizens, but we're just angry British citizens. They make it clear. And their mantra becomes, no taxation without representation. That's it. No taxation without representation. You can't uh, raise our taxes in Parliament without giving us some kind of a vote. Uh, We deserve it. And many people in England are sympathizing with that, but not everybody. Not the Conservatives in the British Parliament. The Conservatives in Parliament would say, well, you have what we call virtual... Representation—that is, someone represents you. You just don't elect them; they're they're selected to represent you. So, I mean, really, how much do they represent you? Well, every colony and in the British Empire has virtual representation. Why should you, the American colonies, be so different? Why should you be so different? This is an event—the Stamp Act riots—that hits home very hard in places like New York and Philadelphia and Boston, but it really doesn't resonate much in the South at all: North Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia. They could not care less. Uh, they are farming a grayering community. They're still doing quite well by the Empire. The Empire's buying their cotton and buying their tobacco and buying their rice and buying their indigo. And they're making a lot of money themselves. We're not talking about a direct challenge to the British Empire. Not yet. But the ball will roll. And we'll be there soon enough. On the next episode, we'll talk about the Boston Massacre. The Boston Tea Party and the Rebellion of Massachusetts. Thank you for joining us. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Wartime.